Let's pray. Father, uh, we're here tonight by your mercies, Lord, and we really mean that, how you have worked in the present and the past in all of our lives. Uh, and without your intervention in our lives, not a one of us would really be here. And we are so grateful uh, that you send your gospel into the world, into our personal world, and that you reveal your glorious Son to us, who is the completely sufficient Savior uh, to save us past, present, and in the future. Help us understand, Lord, what that means. And we ask you to forgive us as, as we uh, are still children and uh, that need to be trained to trust and obey. Lord, thank you that you're committed to us. That is our hope. Thank you for the certainty of our justification, forgiveness, and adoption that you will always be our Father. And uh, that's just a wonderful thing. May that encourage us to love you more, Lord. And uh, we do pray for Marge. We thank you for her, her testimony of so many years. And uh, we ask that you give her a stable mind and deliver her from the evil one that perhaps can put thoughts into her head uh, and help her uh, remember your word and uh, help her listen uh, to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I, I think we're at number... Um, let me get to it in my own notes. I think we're at number 11. Yeah, we're at number 11 on, on the outline. And I'm not going to review much tonight because probably we're going to hit things maybe a second time a little bit as we go forward. So we're talking about, I'll review a little bit, we're talking about what's been called non-lordship theology. And those with the non-lordship theology seek to defend the idea that a person can be forgiven and a Christian and there will be no observable change in their life. If we want to simplify it, it gets down to that. You've believed, but that doesn't necessarily mean there will be actual change in your life. So, um, And we think that that is an error, a serious error, and uh, that is an error coming from uh, using a reduced definition of salvation. Reducing the concept of salvation down to only forgiveness and nothing more. And that's where this error is coming from, is oftentimes people will almost use the term salvation and forgiveness just synonymous, as if it's the same thing. But, as we've been studying the Bible, of course, salvation is the upper concept and it includes all of these other things. Salvation includes forgiveness. It includes justification. Salvation includes adoption. It includes election. It includes union with Christ. It includes dying with Christ and rising with Christ. The Romans 6 argument. And you'll remember that Paul is dealing with that kind of thinking in Romans chapter 6, where he says, What shall we say then? Shall we what? Sin that grace may abound. And he says, certainly not. How can we, who died to sin, still live any longer in it? So, I mean, that's his whole point, that not only are we justified, Romans chapter 5, but we've also died to sin. And so, since we've died to sin, we can no longer be the slaves of it. Uh, now, we're still going to have a struggle with it. We're going to still fight with sin, but we're going to oppose it instead of Go with it. Our whole relationship to sin is altered. Whereas before we were converted, our relationship was, is let's just go with the flow. And the older we became, the more we were willing to just pursue a course of sin. But when we're converted, our relationship to sin is radically changed. Whereas before, we would defend and justify it. Now what we do is, no, we condemn ourselves and say, Lord, you're right. My attitude was wrong. Forgive me for that bad attitude, or I shot my mouth off, or whatever. So our relate when we're converted, our relationship to sin com it completely changes, and uh, 
because we cannot continue in sin that grace may abound. And how did we die to sin? How did, and Paul says, our union with Christ's death and resurrection, Romans chapter 6. Okay, those who have died, those who were crucified with Christ, we were crucified with Christ that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And so we've worked all through that uh, <clears throat> the last couple of weeks. So now we're coming here on number 11 there, is what really kind of triggered these course this this short series in the first place was as I made a comment some Sundays ago that the terminology of you must receive Christ as Savior and Lord has been one approach to counteract the non lordship theology. And I I've expressed that I'm not really comfortable with using that expression, we must receive Christ as Savior and Lord in order to deal with the non-Lordship theology. So, um, I think there's a better way to speak, and I think we, are, we leave ourselves open to those who disagree with our concept of effectual grace. So, let's just get into it. It'll be a little more... A little more Complicated maybe tonight, but number 11 there, those who defend the effectual grace understanding have oftentimes unintentionally given support to the incorrect views by adding the and Lord requirement to faith alone. So how has, how has that happened? we are unintentionally agreeing that salvation means only forgiveness, but not deliverance from slavery to sin, when we use that terminology. We've unintentionally accepted a reduced definition of what it means that Jesus saves and that He is the Savior. When when we add that on, we're unintentionally agreeing with this reduced definition of salvation. So what does Matthew 121 actually mean? What does that actually mean? And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will, it's a certainty, he will, what? Save his people from their sins. Now, what does that mean? Does that simply mean he will just forgive them and let them go on living a life practicing sin? That's what a lot of people think. That's what non-lordship theology thinks. See, they've reduced the whole concept of salvation and Jesus as Savior basically being forgiveness and you're not going to go to hell. You're going to go to heaven. And it means nothing more than that. It, do, it ensures nothing more than that. Well, no, we've been, I've been saying all along here that's just not true. Saving his people from sin means he's going to forgive them and he's going to transform them. He's going to forgive and deliver them out from being slaves to sin. So, we, we don't want to unintentionally agree with that reduced definition of salvation. We've conceded the most important ground in the Lordship Salvation controversy, that is, what it means that Jesus saves, and that He is the Savior we, if we go with that thinking, we've re, if we have to add Lord to that, we've reduced our definition of salvation to Romans 5, but Romans 5, 6, and 8 shows us what it means that Jesus saves. Romans 5, He justifies us. Romans 6, He delivers us from the slavery of sin by, dying, by us dying with Him and being risen. Romans 8, 
He's given us the Holy Spirit, which also transforms us in Romans 8. You have all of those, or, or you have nothing. So, um, <clears throat> what I've been reasoning is that believing in Christ as Savior is enough. Because as Savior, he accomplishes through his death, resurrection, and his ascended intercession all of these things for us. A person either has all of this work or none of it. You either have Romans 5, Romans 6, and Romans 8. You have all of those works of Christ or you have none of them. So. To insist that people may experience one aspect of Christ's work and not the others, and that such a person is still in Christ, that is a serious error. If such was true, Paul's argument against the objection would be invalid. Some can continue in sin that grace may abound. Right? Paul's argument is, how shall we who died to sin still continue in it? If we can split the life-changing effect from the justifying effect, then Paul's argument is wrong. He's saying it's not possible. Non-lordship theology is saying it is possible. You can continue in sin that grace may abound. So... um, So, we don't need to insist that a person, we don't need to insist, we don't need to insist a person must believe on Christ as Savior and Lord. Just insist on believing in Him as Savior and then say, let's consider what He does for all whom He saves. Do you see the difference? I, when I say you must receive him as Savior and Lord, I am implying that receiving him as Savior alone is not enough. That's the problem for us when we use that terminology. Now, I, I'm, I'm glad that we're using that terminology, okay, because we're, we're conveying that salvation is more than just forgiveness. But when we say you must receive Him as Savior and Lord, and if you only receive Him as Savior, you're not saved. It's not enough. You see, see, see what's happening? You're saying it's not enough. And that's a serious compromise of faith alone, of salvation by faith alone. So, no, believe on him alone to save you, and this is what he will do for you. That's how I'm urging us to think. He will forgive you, and he will break you free from slavery to sin. He will change your life. He will forgive you, and he will change your life to be pleasing to God. He'll do all of that. And he'll, he'll do it freely. Okay? He'll do it completely by grace. All of that will be gracious. Trust in Him as Savior. So, <clears throat> you see, when... when when we say you must receive him as Savior and Lord, we're open to the charge that we are adding requirements in order to be saved. And that's exactly what the non-lordship folks will say. You guys are violating grace. You guys are adding requirements. That's exactly how they will come back and say we're adding requirements in order to be saved by saying you must 
received Jesus as Savior and Lord. You guys are adding to the gospel. Some of them say, say that, that we're apostates in this controversy. Now, now I will say this. <clears throat> we, bo- we don't have the same concepts of grace. That's for sure. And we'll talk a little more about that this evening. So, based on union with Christ, faith alone in Christ, to do for us what He promises to do, that will never lead to faith without works. Now, i got to put another condition in there. Repentance is required. And we can tell people they must believe and repent because believing and repentance are synonyms. And I'm not going to get into that tonight, but I'm not saying we don't call people to believe and repent or call them to believe, call them to repent, or call them to believe and repent. I'm not saying we drop repentance out of our invitations and calling people to come to Christ. So don't, don't misunderstand me on that. All right? And, and we're, not, we're not talking about repentance tonight, but maybe we can do that some other time. Now, all right, all of you are kind of looking a little dazed. Uh, do you have a question or comment? Are you, are you following me? Uh, what I've been saying with the problem with adding the and Lord. Uh, yeah. uh, the and Lord, uh, from what you're describing, sounds no different than like Catholicism, you know, uh, salvation plus works. Or... That's, that's exactly what the non-Lordship people will charge us with. Yeah. So... That's, that's exactly what, that's correct. Um, the different yeah. concepts of grace, are you about to go into that? Well, we've been, did, did you, yeah, We'll talk more about effectual grace. Okay. Yeah, here this evening. So, okay, so um, on number 12 there, I want to give some examples, in addition to Romans 6, of biblical definitions of salvation and grace, which include more than just forgiveness. So, the first one we're going to look at is Titus. Titus chapter 3. Uh, beginning verses 4 through 7. Now, now, so think about what it means to be saved. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward mankind appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, here it is, He saved us. Okay, so we're going to use the context to define what it means that He saved us. All right? And what does it mean that He saved us? Well, it doesn't even begin with forgiveness. (laughs) It begins with regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. What, what, What does John call that? What does John call that in the Gospel of John? What, what is this? What is this? What is this? Huh? Who said it? Born again. That's the new birth. That's Paul's terminology for what John calls being born again. Regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be born again. So, Regeneration is part of He saved us. Everyone who's saved and forgiven is regenerated. You see that? That. So, you know, we we could put we could put salvation up here, and then we could start adding all of these things. Regeneration. So, can someone be forgiven and not regenerated? Absolutely not. It's not possible. So, if you are forgiven and you're saved, you're also regenerated. So, and we're not studying regeneration, but if we did, we would see that regeneration is what changes us. We have a new life. If any man is in Christ, he is what? A new what? 
Creation, Scripture says. What a wonderful thing. That's regeneration. Well, let's keep reading. Okay. Whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord. Absolutely. So not only are we forgiven, we have the blessing of the Holy Spirit. That's part of the package. What does it mean he saved us? He poured out his Holy Spirit upon us. And if you think and feel differently, guess what? That's why. You didn't suddenly wake up one morning and become spiritually smart. <laughs> That's why. And yeah, we get that blessing through Jesus Christ. So all, what we do, we're just defining, we're just staying in the context and saying, what does it mean that he saved us? He's telling us here what it means. All right. What else? Ah, here we go. That having been justified by grace. Ah, there's your forgiveness. Justification is the basis for our forgiveness. So yeah, that's included in being saved. It's number three on this particular list. Right? Holy Spirit. Three. Justified. Okay. Having been justified by his grace, ah, there's more that we should become what? Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We have an inheritance. We have a future of glory. That's number four. Okay, there. We have all of those, and that's all part of the definition of being saved. You have all of them, or you don't have any of them. And so, if you have these, you're not going to continue in sin that grace may abound. You can't do it. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> though I still think Romans 6 is the best place to argue from because it ties it right into the death and resurrection of Christ. So, um, so there, there's you a more biblical... Um, straight from the text definition of what it means to be saved. And when we preach the gospel, we can offer all of that. This is what Jesus will do for you. This is what he does. Okay? So, uh, let's look, let's back up in Titus and look at his earlier uh, definition. <clears throat> I don't know if the word saved is used here. Well, Christ is our Savior. Oh, boy, how do we start here? <laughs> All right, we can start up here in verse 11. That's what I have on my notes, actually, starting at verse 11. Okay, we, we might say, what is, well, here, yeah, the term salvation is used here. Okay. For what? The grace of God that brings salvation. Okay? Remember, now we're talking about, we're biblically defining what it means to be saved, what salvation is. And it's God's grace that brings this. Has appeared to all men. Now, what does that grace do? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Ah, that's what the grace does. Grace of God has appeared. Uh, uh, <clears throat> the, the, the grace here is the, is, the, is the object, the one doing the action. Not the object, is the subject, the one doing the action. What action does the grace of God do? The grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness. Let me, let, me, let me look at the ESV translation. Yeah, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God does that. It teaches us to live a different life. What else does it do? 
looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? It gives us a hope. It gives us a hope. Deny ungodliness. I can't spell and write at the same time. Ungodliness, six, hope. Okay? Verse 14. Jesus gave himself for us. That's his death. Why did he die? Well, you ask that question. Well, to forgive us. That's not what this text says. This text is like 1 Peter 2.24. Who gave himself for us, what? That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Here, it's just like 1 Peter 2.24. He gave himself for us that he might transform our lives, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify him for himself. That's all sanctification. He hasn't talked about forgiveness in this passage. Are you getting it? You see my point? These passages are defining what Jesus does. We say Jesus saves. When someone tells you Jesus saves, that's wonderful. Tell me about it. What does that mean? And, I, and I'm sad to say, I bet you a large percentage of professing Christians are going to have this reductionist, well, he forgives us and we go to heaven. <laughs> so, the, okay, and what? Not only the negative, not only, not only getting rid of the lawless deeds, but what? Replacing them with what? Zealous for what? Good works. Not only does he deliver us from the slavish practice of sin, we actually begin doing crazy things that we'd never thought we'd be caught dead doing. You know, like going to church and praying. <laughs> you know, never be caught dead doing that kind of stuff. I can remember the first time I gave some money. I mean, that was like, whoa, <laughs> I actually gave some money to a church? That wasn't the old Dan, let me tell you. <laughs> That's the new creation. See? Uh, zealous for good, zealous for good works. So, so what are we doing? Uh, we're giving examples that salvation includes more than forgiveness. Let's look at, let's look at another one. Um, this one is very powerful. You all know it, but you might not know verse 10. <laughs> okay. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is, this is a great faith alone text also. You don't need to add anything for by grace you have been saved. You see, there's our word, right? You have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And likely that means faith is the gift as well as the salvation. Both faith, uh, the salvation are, are both the gift. And that not of yourselves, the salvation or the faith is not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, okay? Not of works, lest anyone should boast, okay? So yeah, we're not saved on the basis of performing any works, of any meritorious works. It's faith alone, okay? And this is wonderful because that's exactly what we need. But he doesn't stop there. <laughs> We're not saved on the basis of our works, correct? We're saved on the basis of his works. For we are 
his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's effectual grace. Verse 10. Okay? We are his workmanship. That's a beautiful illustration there. It's like a sculptor. And, and the sculptor ha, you know, has the lump of clay and he works on the clay. <laughs> we are his workmanship. We are the object that he works on. He takes us something that's pretty ugly. <laughs> he takes us in all of our sinfulness, in all of our baggage, in all of our sinful habits, and in all of that, he takes all of that and he become and begins to work on us. And the clay can't make itself. And the clay can't make itself. But the but but just think of this: you are this, you are this blown up, wrecked, rusting car, stuck in a ditch, <laughs> right? And someone comes along and says, "I'm going to restore that car," and begins to work. That's right. That's what it is. We are His workmanship. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by His work. And we become the object of Him working on us. Okay, And He fashions us into something entirely new. So we are His workmanship. Okay? Created in Christ Jesus, what, for good works. So this is what we mean by effectual grace. Grace doesn't just make things possible. Grace actually accomplishes things. He works on the car stuck in the ditch, and next thing you know, the engine's running. (laughs) (laughs) And then he goes works on the transmission, (laughs) and then he goes works on the rear end. And next thing you know, the car's out of the ditch. And it's heading in a whole new direction. Isn't that wonderful? That's salvation. That's grace. And a lot of times when we're saved, we don't even realize all that has happened. Okay, I'm not saying you need to know and understand all this in order to be saved. I don't mean that. You don't even, you, you find, you read your Bible and you begin to realize what's happened. <laughs> See? So, um, we are his workmanship is created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you don't have if you have verses eight and nine, you have verse ten. You have it all. Or you don't have any of it. You have verse ten. Most people, unfortunately, they just quote verses 8 and 9 as a proof text and they never get to the works part. This text shows us the relationship between grace and works or the relationship between faith and works. We're saved through faith, then it results in works because Christ begins to work. We become his workmanship. This is the relationship between faith and works or grace and works right here. Okay. So, um, I'm at 12D. All of Christ's offices to us. All of Christ's offices display to us his ability to supply exactly what we as sinners need. This knowledge of him forms the basis for our trust in him. What am I saying here? All of Christ's offices. In other words, I am not saying we shouldn't believe in Jesus as Lord and King. Absolutely, we believe in him as a Lord and King, and he destroys all of our enemies. 
We should believe in him. We should believe in him as Lord, and believe in him in all his other offices and titles as well. Why stop at Lord? He's also prophet, isn't he? Absolutely. He's also prophet. Well, he's also our great high priest. So we believe in him as Lord and as prophet and as great high priest. We believe in him as the word. We believe in him as the fountain of life. We believe in him as our rock. We can add a whole bunch of things to to the Lord term. All of those offices are what make him the sufficient Savior. So when I tell you to believe in him as Savior, I'm telling you he is the one who does all of those things. And if I've explained who Jesus is to you, then I've built a foundation for your trusting in him. And that's what we need to do when we evangelize people. This person, Jesus Christ, what does he do? Well, he shall save his people from their sins. What does that mean? It means this list of things is what that means. And you know what? You can have it all freely by grace. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, that salvation, to all men. It's not based on your works of righteousness or your works of merit. It's not based on your future works. (laughs) It's not based on your past work. It's based on His works. Got it? So, okay. Now, number 13, weaknesses in insisting that one must receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. Uh, When we say or imply that believing in Christ as Savior is not enough, we are slipping into the non-lordship type of mistake, dividing what God has made indivisible in applying Christ's work to all that he saves. You see, we're we're unconsciously saying there's a division. Savior doesn't get it all done. Okay? And, and, you know, and yeah, you can have forgiveness, but we got to add something. So, we're we're, we're unconsciously, you know, we're we're implying that. We're, We're slipping into that that way of that that way of thinking, dividing what God has made indivisible. See, Paul's question in Romans six three is appropriate. The non lordship thinkers do not know this. Let's go back to Romans six again, and uh, <clears throat> see. This hits a, This hits the nail right on the head. Verse three. Okay, so. How shall, shall we sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Here's the question. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Verse 3. Or do you not know that as many as us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's it. That's the problem. The non-lordship people don't know this. This is exactly what they don't know and won't acknowledge. The effectiveness of what this means. Paul says, you know, if you don't agree with me that you can't continue in sin that grace may abound, it's because you don't know what happens to a sinner who dies and rises with Christ. That's exactly right. My challenge to non-lordship theology is that verse. They do not know the rest of Romans 6. And if you did know the rest of Romans 6, you would agree with Paul that you cannot continue in sin that grace might increase. You see that? 
Do you not know? Therefore we were baptized with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should what? Walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we will be united together in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Okay, now you know it. (laughs) Verse 3, you didn't know it. Now you know it. Right there. For he who has died, what? Has been freed from sin. And the ESV makes the proper understanding of that text clearer. One who has died has been set free from sin. That's not talking about forgiveness in this context. That's talking about living in the practice of sin that grace may abound. You see that? See that? So, okay. Yes. The microphone back. There used to be a term called dead to the world. Sometimes you'll hear it. But I think of it mostly in terms of civil servants who were afraid of bribery, you know, and it was said of, you know, some guys who were in civil service uh, that they were dead to the world. They they had their job and they were going to do it straight up, you know. And it gives me, you know, you can be, it doesn't mean to be oblivious to the world, but rather to be dead to the, the world's snares. That's correct. And the influence and the attraction, that's the, that's the concept of dying to sin, is to be dead to the world. It's, it's interesting that you should make that. Uh, we're going to jump over to a verse that's, that's not, um, not in the notes to, to go off of what, Richard has just said <laughs> another wonderful transformation verse from Paul Galatians 6:14 God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world there it is it's this, this is the same doctrine of Romans 6. What Paul is saying is, I'm no longer interested in the glory from the world. And see, my whole conversion not only changes your relationship to sin, it radically alters your relationship to the world. Okay? And Jesus says that in uh, chapter 15 of John. Okay? Your relationship to the world is radically altered. And that's what Paul is saying here. And how has it happened? By the cross. It's happened through the cross. His death and resurrection. And and that's why I think sometimes people try to um, reject the non-lordship theology and they immediately run off to the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And they're really... (laughs) That's okay, but... But they're not using the most powerful arguments. You see, my arguments are coming from Christ's death and resurrection. And, and we see it right here in this text again. It's through the cross that Paul says, I've been crucified to the world and the world's been crucified to me. The power is in the cross. The power is in Christ's death and resurrection. And, and, and we don't... We, we don't say that enough. The way, the way we preach the gospel, there's some weaknesses in it that we, we, need, to, we need to get them corrected. And, and uh, we need a, a biblical emphasis on the effectiveness of Christ's death and resurrection, not only for forgiveness, but for transformation to newness of life. Because that's what the New, Test, that's what the New Testament has. Now, we, said, we went through it last week. There's other ways to deal with non-lordship theology. Not only the Romans 
sixth way, but I keep harping on this because I think it's the most effective way is to understand Paul's arguments there in, in, in Romans 6. So, yeah, dead to the world, Richard. You, uh, there, there's your verse, uh, and, it, and it happens to us through the cross. Um, okay, where are we? We're at um, 13b, believing in Christ as Savior is enough because as Savior he accomplishes through his death, resurrection, and ascension all aspects of our salvation, including the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which, which we saw that listed as one of the blessings, including deliverance from slavery to sin in this life. The saving efficacy described in Romans 5 and 6 cannot be separated. One has both or neither. Implying that believing in Christ as Savior is not enough can be problematic. How can Jesus be the Savior? How can Jesus being the Savior not be adequate to save us? It's not possible. If that's his title, he's adequate to save us. Okay? And uh, we have to have the full definition of salvation. We must never accept, I got it in bold print here, we must never accept reduced definitions of the terms save and Savior and an unbiblical definition of grace. The grace here is, is effectual grace. Now, we're on Roman numeral 5, section 5. We're not going to finish it. Let's start this a little bit. Let's start into this bit, on number 5 there. All right, now, impact upon preaching the good news to sinners and saints. If you're following me, you're probably saying, well... <laughs> this is going to impact the way we present the gospel, both the sinners and saints. There's going to be an impact here. And uh, something I learned too slow is you should never take a tool away without replacing it with something better. <laughs> so if I'm taken away from you saying, believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, and if you don't do the end Lord... You're not going to be saved. If I'm taking that away from you, well, I need to give you a better tool. I need to give you a better way to do this than just take it away. In my early days of teaching, you know, and some of you young guys who, who are teaching and want to teach, you know, and, and don't do what I did. In my early days of teaching, I can point out all of the things that are wrong. Okay, sermon's over. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> You can't just point out the things that are wrong. Okay, if that's not how we are to do it, well then, show me what to do. All right? And I'm just reflecting a little bit on, on my past where, you know, I probably did that for five years probably, okay, and people still endured me. And then I realized, you know, I need to, uh, I need to myself not only know what's wrong, I need to know how to, how to do these things right. So, so there is the impact upon preaching of the gospel here. And so let's talk about that. The non-lordship gospel gives no hope to sinners who are experiencing deep conviction of sin. Not only guilt, but slavery. When people are experiencing guilt, oftentimes, if they're really being biblically convicted of sin, they also are experiencing bondage. I can't change. I know this behavior is wrong. I know I'm guilty before God, but I can't stop. Okay? And every unconverted sinner is in that position. People say, oh, I'm not a slave to sin. I'm not a slave to sin. Oh, you don't think so? Well, then just stop sinning. Just stop. Just try to stop. 
you know, and unregenerate people will say, oh, I'm not a slave to sin. I'm not enslaved to sin. Well, here, here's some things that are sin, and starting tomorrow, just stop. Stop being angry. Stop lusting. Stop being greedy. Okay? Stop being bitter. Stop holding grudges. <laughs> we can go on and on. Okay? Try to stop. You can't. That's, we need to be saved. We don't only need to be forgiven, we need to be delivered. You'll call his name Jesus. He will what? Save his people from their sins. That's what we need. And the non-lordship salvation says, well, you may or may not get that. You can be forgiven and there's no guarantee There's no absolute guarantee on the second part. You know why? Because it depends on something you still need to do. Rededicate your life. Get the blessing of the Spirit. They've got that big switch. Remember the switch in Romans chapter 6? That all the effects in Romans chapter 6 don't operate until you flip the switch. I would not be here. I would never have persevered in the Christian faith if that were true. If Christ is waiting for me to flip the switch in order for me to be delivered from slavery to sin, I'd never be. I'd fall back into slavery for sin and I'd never flip the switch. Yeah, I'm passionate about this. Because we need hope. And Christ is a Savior that will flip the switch. And He flipped the switch when He died and rose for you. And that kind of grace and that kind of Savior is going to operate in your life. You trust in Him. You just keep trusting in Him. You keep believing in Him to save you in the big sense. And the non-lordship theology is saying this is conditional and it's conditional on something the sinner has to do. And that's my first point there. That kind of gospel gives no hope when you are really convicted of sin. You see what I'm saying? I think you see what I'm saying. No, when you believe in Christ, you get the whole package. Okay? So, um, on B there, yeah, the experience of being under sin. Let's look at it. That Paul's under, under phrases, Romans 3, 9. This is what we're talking about. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. Alright? That's all of us. We're all under sin. Now, being under sin doesn't mean just guilty. It means under the influence. And that's the problem. People are reading these texts. And all they think of when they hit the phrase under sin, oh, that means I'm guilty. Well, you are guilty, but being under sin means much more than you're being guilty. Being under sin means you're enslaved. You're under the power of, under the influence of. And here's the description of being under sin as it is written. Okay, there is none righteous. Well, that's, that's judicial, okay? That may not relate to how you live. That's the law court terminology. You're all guilty. That's correct. Being under sin means there's none righteous. It means you're all guilty. No, not one. Okay, we're all guilty. Fine. Well, is that all that it means to be under sin? To be not guilty? Well, no, we've got five or six more verses. What does it mean to be under sin? Oh, it means your mind is darkened. There is none who understands. Right? 
To be under sin means you don't understand spiritual things. We're all in the dark. That's what it means to be under sin. I lived in the dark for 22 years. What else does it mean to be under sin? My will is twisted. There is none who seeks after God. To be under sin means I won't seek God. What will I do? I'll run the other direction as fast as I can go. That's what it means to be under sin. They have all turned aside. My will goes I have a free will, absolutely. Not in the autonomous Arminian sense, but that I act freely. The problem is that I always go the wrong direction when I'm under sin, when I'm in this condition of being under sin. They have together become unprofitable or useless. Right. They don't, there's none who does good. No, not one. This is a whole description of what it means to be under sin. It's graphic. Their throat is an open tomb. That's just graphic. We can't control our tongues, our speech. We lie. Poison of asses under their lips. Our speech shows us the heart whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness under sin. Their feet are swift to shed blood. We're violent. We give over ourselves to violence. Those are the negatives. Destruction and misery. We don't have the positive. And the way of peace. They have not known. Any fool can start a quarrel. Man, can we start quarrels. (laughs) That's what it means to be under sin, you see. Paul's phrase there, under the influence, under the power. But Jesus Christ is able to break us free and start to put us on a different course. And suddenly, instead of engaging in the argument further, we accept the evil and we forgive. Instead of retaliating, we know that Jesus calls us to forgive and return good for evil. And we say, oh Lord Jesus, help me do that. Help me not return evil for evil. You know, get me at least to step one where I don't return evil for evil. You know, let me, you know, that's already the college level, okay? <laughs> Not returning evil for evil. And get me in graduate school to return good for evil. Anyways, this is a, this is a terrible list. All I'm saying exegetically is I'm defining what it means to be under sin by the text. Isn't it amazing how the Bible works? I defined what it meant to be saved by just reading the text. <laughs> And here I'm defining what it means to be under sin by just reading the next five or six verses. It's the proof-texting mentality that is weakening the church. Now, the good thing about Paul's under-phrases is Romans 6.14. There's also being under grace. So now we know sin is this powerful influence, right? For sin will not have dominion over you. Why not? For you are not under law, but under grace. Grace is more powerful than everything in that Romans 3 list. Being under grace is more powerful than everything in that list I just read you in Romans 3. 
the influence of grace is more powerful than the influence of sin. Got it? Now that gives hope. That's how we got onto this. That give, that's hope, isn't it? This is not a command in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So, that's how you share and preach the gospel and how you encourage the saints in your own own life. That's the grace of God. Effectual grace. Correct? Sin is not going to make you a slave to sin again. You're going to to have to fight, but you're going to want to fight, and you're going to begin to fight. And that's a completely new relationship to sin. And and Romans 6, 12, 12, uh, 6, 11 through 13 says that. So so we we can't teach every doctrine at the same time. So I think that's a good place to stop. We have more to say about the impact on preaching the gospel uh, once we get our definition of salvation up where, where it needs to be. Um, anybody have a comments or, or questions? All right, Dan. Hand, uh, Richard, hand the mic back. Back one row behind you. There you go. Wouldn't uh, the doctrine of adoption play into this too? Um, Absolutely. We're no longer sons. We're sons of God. Sons Absolutely. Of God. We're Romans eight. Saved. Yeah. I, you can't separate Romans five, six, and eight. And we have the glorious teaching of our adoption in in Romans eight. And 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 the Holy Spirit is given to us to reassure us. You see, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to reassure us that we are the children of God. You know, let's just look at that glorious passage since, since Dan, Dan brought it up. It's uh, Romans 8. Let's pop over there. It's such, a, it's such a wonderful thing here. Why did, why did this thing go into that format? Oh, there we go. All right, Romans 8. Uh, the first part talks about the works of the Holy Spirit that help us. But regarding adoption, um, okay. Yeah, Romans 8, verse 15. All right. So we have tools. Let's begin reading at verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. That phrase is somewhat difficult to understand. What I believe that phrase is teaching, and this would be in following Martin Lloyd-Jones, is that the spirit of bondage again to fear, I, I think that's talking about when the Holy Spirit first brings conviction of sin. One of, the, one of the works of the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus in John chapter 16, is conviction of sin. Okay? And when the Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin, fear comes with it oftentimes. Not all the time, but brings that conviction And Paul is saying, you're done with that. And you should have assurance of salvation now. Okay? You're not going to live under this fear that God may cast me into hell. No, that's no way. You're not going to become holy living that way. And so Paul is saying, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but what did you receive? But you received the Spirit, and I think it should be capital S, the Holy Spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, the Holy Spirit is what 
has turned us to call out to God as our Father. And this is a, this is a very affectionate, childlike term. Okay, like Papa, Father. And, and, and this is how, it's just wonderful, the Holy Spirit works to give us assurance and cause us to address God as our Father. And let's keep going. The Spirit Himself bears witness, you see, with our spirit. The Holy Spirit bears our, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. We already ran across that. And it's the Spirit of God working to reassure us that we are children. We won't make progress in holiness without assurance that God loves us, that He's our Father, and He's committed to us. That's the foundation of living the Christian life. And we can have that assurance. The gospel offers that we can have that assurance now. So, and if we're children, well, then we're heirs. And if we're heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, indeed, if we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. Ah, where's the adoption term, Dan? I thought it was in those verses. Is it? What's that? Yeah, the spirit of adoption, but uh, there's another reference. I can't find it right now. Anyways, so, but yes, so we can let let's write that up here on on our list. It's it's such a glorious aspect of of salvation. Option there. Okay. Anybody else have com- comments or questions? I I know we've gone over some. Anybody? All right. Okay. I've given you a lot to think about. Uh, let's pray. Lord, as we think about these things. We're not grateful enough. Thank you. Thank you for making us your workmanship. Lord Jesus, the thought that you have your hands upon us purely out of your grace and that you're fashioning us into your own image, um, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Lord, so we do come to the throne of grace, ask you for mercy and help in the times of need. Lord, those times of temptation, those times when we stumble, Lord, uh, remind us, remind us in those times that you are our Father and deliver us from the evil one, from the devil who wants to drive doubt and and uh, doubt and into our minds. Oh, Lord, help us. Thank you for defeating the powers of darkness. And uh, we thank you that we can call you Abba Father or Our Father. Lord Jesus, thank you for teaching us to pray that way, that we ought to pray to you as Our Father in heaven. And Lord, Father, we're praying to you in Jesus' name. Amen.